Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast. Coming to you on the summer solstice. Here we are coming to you. That was too much, wasn't it? From Boulder, Colorado. We do, where we always come to you from. Yeah, you guys know how special it is that we get to be in Boulder? Pretty special. Oh, you were asking them. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Should we wait for them to answer? Yeah. I think it's special. I love it here. This is my home. It's weird. It's wild and woolly, but it's uh, it's home. Yeah, I mean, on a day like By the way, I'm Scott Powell. And I'm Father Peter Musson. We are the Lanky guys. Okay, and, uh, continue on. Yeah, there's this like kind of like whenever I hit the solstice, like I'm kind of reminded that we exist with a certain kind of amount of paganism around us in the culture. This is true. And like, because cause, like as as uh, Catholics, we don't um, we don't celebrate the solstice. Not as anything other than the first day of summer and a cycle of the moon. Right. <laughs> Which is good. To, to, to enjoy the, the cosmological realities. And, and actually, you know how the church ce- celebrates the solstice? I really don't. Uh, the birth of John the Baptist. Oh, well, no. Yeah, absolutely. The solstice is today. I know, but... And we're recording this. We're close. So what happens <laughs> is that you'll always find the feast of... Uh, the, I see. I see is that true? Yeah, the, the oh. feast of the nativity of John the Baptist. Is it explicit? Like, does the church actually yeah. think and talk about that? Yeah. Because that's kind of cool, if that's because true. Because what? Hold on. Is it the winter stol- solstice if you're in the southern hemisphere right now? Yes. So Sorry. Sorry, sorry for, for my ignorance just now. But sorry, no, it's cool. Aussies. <laughs> well, it means the days are getting longer there. Right. right, I'm getting. Re- I'm gearing up for winter right now. That's what the solstice means to me. I'm getting out my wool woolen sweaters. Right, because I must decrease and he must increase. So way it- to make profound the dumb joke that I just made. <laughs> well, that was well done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's exactly it. Is that is that we celebrate the shortest day of the year? Christmas is associated with it. So we have the two pillars of the shortest day of the year where Jesus comes in the midst of the darkness. And and in a, in a certain sense, John the Baptist comes at the height of is, Israel's culture. And now he must decrease and Jesus must increase. And so, Or if it, you're in the Southern Hemisphere, he well, must increase yeah. and we must decrease. You can just right. reverse the yeah, language. You can I think it. in Greek they're actually reversible, the way that it's actually listed. So Dude, I think it works whether whatever pole you're on, whatever hemisphere you're in. Your theology that you just presented us for the solstice actually works. That's kind of cool. Yeah. So, so well done, Father Peter. Yeah, yeah. So I you knew that your I would a game this morning. Yeah, man. I'm. I like to surprise you. You do like to surprise me. Well, on this. Uh, <laughs> well, what I'm trying to think of what this day is called. It's sim- liturgically, this is called the Solemnity of the Nativity of Saint John the Baptist, or Juanito de Baptisto. Mm-hmm. John the Baptist. That's um, little John the Baptist, but l- I. Yeah, so um our first reading is from the book of Isaiah, also by the known way, as the prophet. Can I give a by the way really quick? Yeah. It's possible if you're going to mass Saturday night. Well, it's not possible. If you're going to mass for the vigil for this particular Sunday, it's different readings on Saturday night. So just a heads up. We're doing the readings for Mass during the day. If you're going on Saturday night, they're a different set of readings because it's a vigil. So we just had to pick and choose. Saturday. Isn't that Earth, Wind, and Fire? In the park. Yeah. I think it was Saturday the Saturday in the park. Something I thought like it that. was uh, Elliot John. Wait. Um, <laughs> I don't Elton know. John. Elton John. Is it not? 
It doesn't matter. Our first reading is, is a reading from Elton John, chapter no. 49, oh 1 through goodness. 6. And by that, he means Isaiah. I know. I already six. said that. We're, oh, we did you? Right. Yeah, we, that, dude, that's like that's But I was like busy church. cutting you off then. Yeah, the church from the 1960s, man, like sometimes the, they like would read weird things in church. Oh, yeah. And uh, we don't do that because we believe- I thought you were the, saying like back in the 60s, it was pronounced differently. <laughs> they pronounced it as Elton. Dude, <laughs> just let me complete a thought, okay? Just like- just I'm like, sorry. Hang out I'm sorry, one man. Minute. I just, I'm anticipating where you're going, oh, but see. you're elusive today. I can usually predict what you're about to say. I can usually finish your sentences. You really, we today, did earlier. You're elusive. Yeah, not today. Okay. All right, our sponsorial psalm is coming from Psalm 139, starting at 1B through 3, and then 11 through 14, A and B, 14C, <laughs> through 15. That is a lot of letters. With the numbers. response from 14. This is like a Sesame Street skit. <laughs> letters and numbers. This responsorial <laughs> psalm brought to you by the letter B. And our writing, our writing, our red writing hood, also What's known happening? as the second reading, oh, is X13, 22 to 26. Very good. And our gospel this week is coming from Luke chapter 1, 57 through 66, and then jumping, just putting 80 in there as, an, as a cherry on top. <clears throat> I feel you, like I'm losing my voice. Um, you know, just, drink, just drink more of that Red Bull. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Isaiah 49. Isaiah, man, this is great. This is right on the edge of, of the first part of Isaiah before we move into the... Um, oh, I see. The first it, half. The first half of Isaiah when before we move into the new part of Isaiah. But it, everything's kind of mixed up. So it's it kind is. of like... This, is, th- this reading to me seems like it's the precursor to a voice crying out into the wilderness. Well, it's interesting. It, it is that. It's also interesting because this is the second of what are called the servant songs, right? Okay. So we've talked a lot about the servant song songs and what i um here's what's uh, where the church is really beautiful in her thought in her her wisdom of putting this here the servant songs um are these series of of prophecies in the book of isaiah basically talking about jesus and describing israel in her perfected form or israel in her idealized form which is jesus the king who comes to embody israel right mm. who is the suffer- the servant who will suffer who will redeem israel who will make israel what she was supposed to be they're about Jesus, but what I love about it is that in the Old Testament, we have all of these layers of meaning. It's like an onion that you peel back, right? Mm. So you read this. This is the second one, and you can, of course, read it and hear Jesus. But in the wisdom of the church, and I've never seen this before, but in the wisdom of the church, she puts it here on this feast day because you can also very much see John the Baptist in this, who is a kind of a servant, who is right. preparing the way for the servant. Yeah. So it's not it's the beauty of the way that we read the Old Testament. There's not one answer and one answer alone. Like, no, there's layers of meaning that God is sort of embedded in all this. Yeah. And so as it, as it begins, it goes, it, it says, Hear me, O coastlands, listen, O distant peoples. The Lord has called me from my birth, from my mother's womb. He gave me my my name. John. John. Well, it, so you can We're apply to Jesus. We're going to get that to that later, though. Well, here's here's where I'm stuck on John. <clears throat> so all of this you can, of course, apply to Jesus. The Lord called him from the, the Annunciation, gave him his name, Mary knew, like all of these things. He gave me a sharp-edged sword, uh, made of me a sharp-edged sword. He concealed me in the shadow of his arm. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me. I like those two lines, the polished arrow and the quiver he hid me, because it's like, I'm God's secret weapon. Right. Is literally what that says. Well, and I think when somebody says that you concealed me in the shadow of your arm, does that mean that he concealed him in his armpit? Yes. 
Just tuck it on. Tuck, him on. tuck him under there. I'm trying to look for the shadow. I mean, either that or he's a, he's like the sword. You know, I mean, polished quiver. It's, it's a little like, bit of both. Yeah, it's a kind of, okay, it's a little bit of armpit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, I've got nothing to add. <laughs> you are my servant, he said to me, Israel, through whom I show my glory. So this is where it's pretty explicit. This is where, you know, you can't get an even one-to-one. You are my servant, he said to me. You are Israel, through whom I will show my glory. That's Jesus. Jesus is Israel. He is Israel perfected. He is Israel embodied. But then here's what it says that I'm struck with John. Though I thought I toiled in vain and for nothing, uselessly I spent my strength, yet my reward is with the Lord. And the reason I'm struck by that particular, so you can read that, of course, and in the tradition of the church that, you know, it looks as though at times Jesus is toiling in vain. It looks as though he's preaching and no one's listening. He's doing miracles and everyone's abandoning him. He is eventually, you know, stripped and crucified and beaten and put on a cross and everyone abandoned him. And it looks for the eyes of the world like he toiled in vain. Right. But there's no point that Jesus thinks he's toiling in vain. Right. I don't think there's any moment that Jesus falls into despair. Even that line, you know, when he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? It's, he's not despairing. He's citing a, a 22, broader, Psalm yeah. 22, and he's pointing towards the old, even all of this is happening, I'm going to still glorify the Lord. But John, however, I do think there's a point in John's life, and we speculate, we've, and I don't know John's heart, we've talked, talked about, about this, this, where he's like, where he's John's like, like are you the I, one to come? Am or? I just doing this in vain, essentially? Am right. I, am I, are you the real, he's in prison at one point, right? He's like, I'm suffering here because I've been proclaiming and preparing the way for you. So he sends a message, are you the one to come or should we wait for somebody else? And then and he's, he's frustrated. Yeah, he's struggling, man. And I, I want, that's where I'm hearing John in here, who was prepared in his mother's womb, who was named by God, who is the secret weapon hidden in the quiver of God. And the hiddenness of that is really beautiful because, of course, John has a very front and center role. He is the voice in the wilderness preparing the way for the Lord. But then he's kind of tucked away again in a certain sense. He is the voice in the Gospel of John who says, behold the Lamb. He is profoundly important. But there are these times that it's like, okay, is that it? And now I'm kind of hidden away. And now I'm just tucked away in a prison. And then I call out this king and I'm beheaded. And, you know, what happened? What what happened to me? And where are you going to care for me, Lord? Which is the refrain of, of, it's the refrain of the Christian who's trying to be faithful of, you know, like, why are we getting so beat up? Have you forgotten me? Like, we're here. We're doing the job. Why are we so beat up? Why are we persecuted? Why do we feel so alone? You and Father Peter and I were having even kind of a political discussion this morning. It just as Catholics, I think in a very stark way right now, we feel very alone in the world. We don't fit in the world. We don't fit in political categories, a conservative or liberal, because we can we care about the person and we care about principle. And here you have John kind of feeling it. Like, I don't fit. I'm alone. There's nobody here. Am I doing this in vain? And again, as a Catholic living in 2018, I think it's easy to be like, is this just all in vain? Like, are we just spinning our wheels? Like, where are you? Well, I mean, it's also the the experience of discipleship, of, mm-hmm. of, of really being able to say, I am a disciple of the Lord and I'm going to walk in his way. Because yeah. what happens is that the revelation of how God's actions and works are in our, are, are in our lives and how his glory is going to be revealed is a slow revealing over time, which is yes. really difficult to grasp. Grasp in the middle of it when it, you're in the middle of yeah, that and, time. and and mo- and the and the more mature you get in the faith, the longer those periods are because <laughs> it does seem that way because he has a greater and greater trust. We don't mm. have to be wooed in the wilderness. No, he's got a mission for us, and and w- we're meant to live. 
out of faith, which is actually a more perfect act, uh, act which yeah. is a trust in the Lord even without evidence. Which is what happens to John in a lot of ways because he's actually killed. He's martyred before he actually gets to see the fruit of everything that he had been preparing the way for. Right. Which is, is this profound sort of act of faith of like he's going to give his life even without his eyes being able to see it. Dude, we're talking about the nativity of John the Baptist Day. Can I tell you that I always imagine John the Baptist playing soccer <laughs> as like as like a, like a nine to thirteen year old. Okay, like because like he, I can he probably. I mean, he, did they play soccer in those days? I don't know. I don't know what the field game of the time is. It's Quidditch but, or something. I'm not sure <laughs> what, what, what they played then. <laughs> the olden days. The olden days. John was the seeker. <laughs> <laughs> you're blowing me up over Thanks, here man. man but i just i just imagine him like you know what, what's he doing i mean he's a son of a levitical priest yeah so he might be one of the ones who learns how to do the the feast uh that would go pick the first shoots of grass oh yeah the so, the, the first fruits feast of first, the feast of the sheaves of first fruits the first which we talked about a number of weeks ago. yeah exactly so I, I imagine him doing that i imagine him playing ball i imagine him at home in the hill country Probably like, play, he probably played soccer with Jesus at some point. Absolutely, right? They're hanging out. They're cousins because they're cousins born about the same time. They're the same age, basically. Uh, yeah, what nine months apart? Right. right? And then there's six this, months. Six months. Yeah. Thank you. And then there's this beautiful moment where he's preaching and he's fulfilling his ministry and his vocation, and he sees Jesus walking up and he's like, "It's you, my cousin, the one who I played soccer with, the one who we hung out." I didn't realize you were the one that I was preparing the way for. And he's like, you were always a really good guy. And a really good soccer player. <laughs> I could never get it past you. And now I understand because you're God. And you're like, oh, oh. Which, is, which is so funny. That's why you schooled me all the Isn't time. Isn't that the slow revelation of the discipleship of Christ? Do you think that... Jesus schooled people in sports or do you oh. think he let them win? Um, I, think that, um, I think that he played the exact perfect reality that was needful for the conversion of that person what a cop-out answer <laughs> i'm just kidding i'm just kidding what a holy answer dude this is the i'm just thing, kidding is that um is that i think that he was totally a baller i think that when he played i think that he frustrated people sometimes uh, you would think right? because because he dude he's god but he also came in our weakness and our humility and bodily. I, yeah. There's a, my friend Adam had a picture in his room growing up when we were little kids. It was one of those like pastel paintings of Jesus and little kids, right? And it was a picture of him playing basketball with these little kids, and he's just schooling. <laughs> I don't know if the artist meant it that way, but he's just schooling this I kid. had that in a 3D picture, that. like oh, one man, of those 3D ones, one. and I love it because Jesus is just rocking it. So oh, anyway. So, okay. but, but that's the experience of discipleship yeah. is that he says that, oh, I've known you forever, but and, I didn't re I didn't see it. But until... the glory is now being poured forth. Yeah, that's a better and, way to put it. And now all of a sudden the glory is revealed over time. And now I'm yeah. going to proclaim this. And this is this is wild. And may everybody's going to think this is nepotism, but this isn't. You know. Well, nepotism was pretty popular in those days. <laughs> I don't think people would have frowned on nepotism. Oh, okay. I mean, you almost get the sense that that this is going on in front of you. Almost get the sense that people would be like. Oh, that actually makes sense. Because it's Here's family. John, this guy who's recognized to be holy, and he is profound. He's doing these things. It makes sense that he would be related because we respect him so much and we see his holiness. I mean, holiness runs in families sometimes, right? I mean, there's a reason that St. Therese of Lisieux, 
her whole family is set to be canonized. She might be, they might be the first entire family to be canonized, which is kind of cool because there's this sense that, yeah, maybe that makes sense. And you kind of rub off on each other. Yeah. It's not always the case. And I mean, Ezekiel actually has this beautiful passage about, look, it's not always the case that holy fathers have holy sons and that, you know, sometimes holy, holy children come out of really unholy parents. And that, that's, that's the deal. But yeah, I wonder if people were like, oh yeah, actually that kind of makes sense. Mm. I don't know. I wonder if there's a beauty there. Uh, we also have to point out before we move on from the first reading, there's a, a beautiful line that will show up later on in the gospel. Actually it doesn't, but it's in the context of the gospel. Um, this passage, it's very important, the second servant song, because it's what's known as the, the great commission of the old Testament. If you've heard that term before. Nope. So the Great Commission, of course, in Matthew, where Jesus calls us to go out to all the nations and make disciples. Disciple. That was not a new command, and that's embedded within the Old Testament. And so here, as Isaiah is preparing the way for the one who will prepare the way for Jesus, he's giving us the insight into what's going to happen. So he says, yeah, I, I labored in vain, it seemed like it, or I spent my strength, blah, blah, blah. But now the Lord has spoken, who formed me as his servant from the womb as he was leaping in Elizabeth's tummy, right? Right. That Jacob may be brought back to him. That's all of Israel. Israel gathered, and that I may be glorious in the sight of the Lord. And my God is now my strength. It is too little, he says, for you to be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and renew, restore the survivors of Israel. It's too small to just build Israel back up. Israel's a wreck when Isaiah's writing this. They're being hauled off in exile. They're being beat up. They've been split up in a civil war. And God's saying it's not enough just to restore this nation. Right. It's not enough for Israel just to get fixed. You, rather, it says... Um, I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth, which is why when the apostles are hearing Jesus saying in Matthew, go out, be a light to the world, you know, be the city on a hill, go out to all the nations. They should be thinking, oh, yeah, that's been the gig from the beginning. That's what Isaiah said, isn't it? That's what John was setting us up for. Right. And the, the fact that John is living out this identity, never being able to see the fruit of what he has actually done. But yet, it says, what does it say? Um, that I may be made glorious in the sight of the Lord. That I may have a solemnity devoted to my birth, mm. which is what we're celebrating today. This is, today is literally the fulfillment of that prophecy. Right. I felt abandoned. I felt like I toiled in vain for nothing, uselessly. I spent my strength, but... I've been made glorious because the Lord worked through me. Yeah. And we fulfill that today. Literally, we're celebrating that, yeah. which is cool. I, I mean, I just, I, I think that that is so much of the deep experience of our, of our lives is mm. you're like, does anything that I do matter? Mm. How many priests do I know who are like toiling in some, you know, backwaters, uh, country parish who are, Living with us, a, a people who you say, are, are, what are they doing? Are they? Is this even going to matter? Yeah. Like, and but yet it's precisely it's precisely when we're faithful directly that sanctity and and sainthood doesn't it has no uh, geographic boundaries. Yeah, you it. can you can do it in the in the backwoods and the backwaters and and it's and it's equally as holy and equally as important. I mean, Lisieux is in the middle of nowhere, man. She Ours, never left the France. convent for most of no, that's uh, St. John Vianney. She was in Lisieux. I know, I said I I was just I was oh, naming were, towns. Oh, I was being all all high and mighty. 
stuck in myself. I'm sorry. Hey, no, Father Peter. She was in Lisieux. No, she was in Lisieux. I'm just saying, like, sorry. where you know, who cares about these little backwaters towns like Nazareth, like Nazareth? Mm. Okay, that brings us to the psalm. Okay. Um, I love the fact that I mean, we're just, there's just a lot of time spent considering the womb in this particular set of readings because yeah. so we have the second strophe it says you knit me in my mother's womb you've formed my inmost being and and and, and yeah. this is this is always important to remember when we're considering the nativity of John the Baptist is that he having when he, like there's a belief that he is sanctified in the womb of Elizabeth when yeah. when she meets Jesus not saved from sin like Mary was in the womb right but sanctified made holy made right? holy and so so it's like it, it's like that's why the the whole naming naming is like we're going to get to that in the gospel but naming is is a bestowal yeah. of mission and so we're in this like really interesting place where like we know how God is responding and reacting and giving mission mm. and missioning him even as as David would have danced before the the uh, ark yes. of the covenant he danced and is sanctified now he's not he, he's made holy now um he's we're still going to need to do some stuff because <laughs> Jesus hasn't the, the graces of the cross right. will be applied in some mystic way in his life because he's you know, he's, but he still has that experience. But he's going down to the Gehenna, the, the holy, the yeah, the holy souls who are he lifts oh, Jesus up is, yeah. Jesus in his his death and resurrection. So, so we we just sing about that, saying like, this is a moment we know that the Lord is active and uh, at every stage of life. Yeah, and maybe it's because I'm in a melancholy mood today. I've been in a melancholy mood for months, <laughs> but you know, I'm reading the psalm, and I, I'm I'm again, I, I can't get out of uh, this thought of those words in John's mouth from the first reading again, am I toiling in vain? Am I working for nothing? Am I just spending my strength? Mm. And I wonder if John who knows the Psalms quite well, I mean, as a Jewish man, he would have recited the Psalms almost daily. Right. Right. And I wonder if he came back to 139 saying, as he's sitting in a prison cell thinking, am I toiling in vain saying, you know what, Lord, you know me, you know, when I stand and when I sit, you know, when I sit in a prison cell, you're there, you see me, right? You understand my thoughts, my journeys and my rests. You scrutinize with all of my ways. You're familiar. I feel like I might be, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what you're doing, Mm -hmm. but I take refuge in the fact that you know me, Mm -hmm. you know that I'm here. You're aware of it. And I trust that you will deal with it. You know what I mean? Yes. But I put the words in those Psalms back in John's mouth and I, you know, who knows, but it, um, it's good as we're sitting and being like, are we laboring in vain? Are we just wasting our strength? You know what? The Lord knows when I sit and when I stand, he knows everything that I'm doing. He knows it's cool. He's got me. Right. He knows how much my neck beard is starting to go gray, man. That's why I just like got to keep it trim, man. That was a different translation. Yeah. That was my neck neared. Okay. Acts. What did you just say? Neared neck beard. Oh, Yes. Yes. Act. Okay. I love, I love this. You're going to I, I, okay, set up the context. Yo, show I, me. I don't have any huge profound insights on this, but I have a, a cool context. Okay. Context. So are important. This is one of Paul's many speeches before the people, right? Yeah. This is actually, so it's, it's interesting in Acts 13. There's a I think, well, I feel like we've talked about this. There's a, there's a turning point in Acts when the church literally moves. It, it, you could follow the course of what the first reading said, right? Where the church for about the, the first eight chapters or so of Acts of the Apostles yeah. is focused on rebuilding the house of Israel. 
She is in Jerusalem. She is trying to preach to the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders, and Peter's giving speeches, and we're working on the Israel, on the house of Israel, right? right. And then the whole thing happens with Peter and the, the pigs in a blanket vision. They come down, right? He sees the animals. Take, and eat. Cornelius, he goes up, and they're all baptized, and they, they have a second Pentecost, and they begin to realize, oh, when Jesus said to go out to the nations, he meant go out to the to nations. Go out to the nations, like, <laughs> like oh right, like like n- not not say hey we're so cool yes. to the nations, but literally going go. out, like like leave your house. Yeah. The the boundaries need to be broken, and you need to go. And that I mean that's the whole reason why the pigs in the blanket. It says Excellent. because the, all of the food laws were restricting them from being able to make covenant with other nations. Exactly so right. so now the, so now they can actually have dinner. They can covenant themselves absolutely. Out and they can go and actually eat what the other people are eating. Yeah, share a meal, share fellowship with them. Right. And so the baton then is, the baton is sort of passed to Paul, who will be the missionary to the nations, right? Mm-hmm. But even Paul, within his pedagogy, every time he goes to a new city or a new place, where does he always start? Do you remember? The synagogue. Yeah, he goes to his people. And there, there's something pedagogical about the evangelization process, the uh, the uh, the kerygma of, of how that works, right? He always starts with the Hebrew people because that's where the word of God came. That was the people of the covenants. They were the ones to whom we were supposed to go out to the nations. You know why, so how he always the, starts with the Hebrews? With coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes tea. Oh. But, you know, he start because the idea is if we... Yeah, we have to start in our own family, and then we move outward. But he does it in a, in a systematic way. Anyway, so he's in a place in chapter 13. He, I think he's with Barnabas. Is that right? Barney. But they're in a place called uh, Pisidian Antioch, not to be mistaken with um, with uh, Syrian Antioch, which is his home base. It's really confusing. There's two Antiochs. But he's in a place <laughs> called the Antioch of Pisidia, which is which is in um, it's in Galatia. So it's in modern-day Turkey. Anyway, they're in this place, kind of far-flung. They're in Galatia. They're kind of in the country. And it's in, I, I actually want to read how this starts because it's cool. I had it marked, but I lost it. Um, okay, so we're in chapter 13. It says this. Okay, uh, verse 13, in fact. Paul and his company sent out from Pathos. They came to Pergamon, Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they passed on to Perga, and they came to Antioch of Pisidia. So on the Sabbath day, because they're still Jews, they're devout Jews, on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, brethren, if you guys have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Now, now think, was it a tradition? Was it a tradition that they would open the for, like open the ground of the foreigner? Well, here's the thing. And, and this is, I'm not 100% sure, but there is a tradition. I'm not 100% sure what's happening here, but... There is a tradition. So imagine this. They sit down in the synagogue. They're just like, we got to find a church to go to Mass on Sunday. And they're like, who are these dudes? Well, it is a tradition, though, that a visitor, a visiting teacher, a visiting rabbi would be often called upon. Oh, and Paul was... And they were the visitors. Yeah. And so just imagine Paul sitting there. They probably don't know who he is. He's just a, he's just some some traveler. And the rabbi in the synagogue is like, what about you? Do you have anything you'd like to share with the congregation? And Paul's like... Do I have anything I want to share with the congregation? Well, He's now like, that let's you go. Ask. But can you imagine that? Like his whole job is preaching to the nations, and they're like, "Would you like to say anything?" <laughs> I just imagine his face, dude. So that feels. Like, like... I wonder if he like chose the front row. He's like, "I'm going to sit in the front, and I'm going to make eye contact with the rabbi the whole time." <laughs> like, right. So he calls on me. It feels like that, like when you open it for a eulogy <laughs> at the end of a funeral. Oh boy. Oh yeah, I've been waiting for this. No, exactly. Or when we do our ASCT lectures and we have questions, and like, there's that person that's like, "I've been waiting the entire time to ask this question." Yeah. No, our questions are question questions, not comment <laughs> questions. Yes. Paul's got a comment. 
comment question. question. <laughs> so Paul stands up. He's like, do I have something to say? And he goes before this group of Jewish people, these faithful Jews, and he recounts the entire story of salvation history. He's like, you guys don't realize that this story has actually been fulfilled. And he goes back. He actually quotes Isaiah. We don't get it in the reading this week, but he goes back to Isaiah and he goes back to this particular servant song talking about how God promised that he would make us a light to the nations. And that's where you guys actually live. You're mm. in Pisidian Antioch. You're not Jerusalem Jews. You're Pisidian Jews, which means you are in the midst of the world, which it's kind of like you and I living in Boulder. Right. Like we don't, we're not holed up in the Vatican. We're actually in this place where people don't know what we're doing or right. what we're talking about. Right. And so we have a unique opportunity. And Paul's like, now is the time for that. Everything that Jesus did was said everything that the Old Testament prophets, so David, and you know, talked about David dancing before the ark. Peter pulls on, or Paul pulls on David. He pulls on Moses. He pulls from Abraham. He's like, all of this stuff that you know, that you've memorized, that you know by heart, now is the moment to do something about it. It's great that you've gathered here on the Sabbath. That's wonderful. But now is the time to take it and take it to the next level because that's what God has done. He doesn't bring up John the Baptist explicitly, no, yeah, he does actually. Yes, he, he does. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, worthy, yeah. The John heralded this. Taking it to the streets. By proclaiming a baptism of repentance. But I love, I just love that idea that he just shows up, he's sitting in the front row, and they call on him. They're like, do you want to say anything? Said, yes. <laughs> Which is this beautiful sort of mm. mentality of uh, sometimes, I, I don't want to over spiritualize something that's very practical. But sometimes we do get in these mentalities of like, how do I share the gospel with my friends? Or how do I actually share what I believe with the people around me and my workplace and my neighbors? And I think one of the things that's sort of embedded in the story is that if we put ourselves in God's presence and if we put ourselves in the grace of God, he will allow an avenue for us to share those things. Right. If we're willing to share the gospel, if we're willing to be a light to the nations, to open ourselves up to that possibility— then he's going to call on us, literally, right? Right. He's going to be like, do you have anything to say? Or our neighbor's going to be like, hey, what do you guys always do dressed up so nice on Sunday? What's that all about? You know, I mean, we've actually, we live in such a secular place here where we live, Father Peter, that we've literally had neighbors being on Sunday like, why are you guys all dressed up? We're like, oh, we're going to church. And they're like, oh, wow, like that's really novel. But it's, you know, it's so rare. But it actually sparks conversations and all of a sudden you have an avenue. If you put yourself in the avenue of grace, he's going to open a door that you can actually share these things. Well, and that's where I look and I see, okay, John the Baptist proclaiming a baptism of repentance, which now our baptism is simultaneously a baptism of Christ and repentance. It's actually now merged. So, so for an adult, we have a baptism of repentance. Mm. Um, for children, the, the, they're they're repenting on the behalf of humanity and original sin, yes. but the, those baptisms are combined. Yeah. I look at the kind of modern secular institutions, okay. like um, big popular self help books, or YouTube inspirational YouTube videos. What are they What are they saying? Hey man, live your life. You know, get up, do your exercise, be the best, be unrelenting, go for the gold. Like, what is what is the gold? What is the end? What is the purpose? And they're like, you've got to repent from your life. I mean, mm. ultimately, they're saying, rethink how you wake up. Do you, do you, are you waking up with your alarm? Are you waking up with the sunrise? Or are you sleeping in? Are, are, do you do you actually have an intention in your life? Or you know, you're not exercising. You're eating terribly. What are you actually about? No, change what you're about. And they're like, repent literally. Means means turn turn it's a very visceral word right so yeah s- start living your life right eating good food exercise get up with the sun do your work 
you know, have some ambition, make a lot of money, be like a CEO, do these things, get the gold medal. Like Mm. in a certain sense, it's like, Mm. it's like they're decent. They're for the most part, decent and okay. Inspirational goals. They're neutral. They're neutral. They're, they're like, uh, but, but they're, are they're saying, um, change the narrative of your life. Are you stuck in negative ways of thinking, change the way you're thinking and think about things in a positive capacity, Mm. repent of your life. Mm. Um, and, and so in a certain sense, it's like what's happened is that we, um, we like get so big and filled with guilt and shame that we, we forget that a repentance is just like that. Like when I make a new intention and a new goal in my life to live well, I'm just repenting. You're repenting. I'm repenting from, oh, you know what? I've let this other stuff in. And so John the Baptist is proclaiming this thing with a new goal. But this is the thing is that our, our, our worldview about the purpose and the nature of the things of this world are, are, is really deeply compelling, but we've lost that. And we, yes. and and so in a certain sense, we can talk and we can have this kind of ability to have, oh, change your narrative, exercise, get up, do your work, you know, get up with the sun, do good things, have self-care, you know, care about your neighbor, to serve them. Um, and we can have some of the same languages, the secular culture, but our ends are different. The ends are different. And yep. that's why John the Baptist is so important because he appoints towards Jesus Christ. He's like, this is, this is who it is. And so when Paul is able to get up, he says, look, he is in this stream. He is in this historical reality. He makes sense of history. You're not isolated from history. And that's actually the one of the really difficult things that we exist in right now is that we're isolated from, we feel isolated or we want to wake up from history. Um, just like what Jesus Jones says right here, right now, you know, (laughs) we want to wake up from it and we want to wake up in history and like realize it. But we, we, we're, we actually have a very short view of history right now. So whereas John the Baptist is looking and making a real, a real sense of that, that's why, you know, we, you know, are we, are we being pointed at you? Why are we unwilling to do some, this is to answer why are we, some, some of the reason why we're unwilling to go out and share, go to the nations is because we don't have that deep sense that this is a critical thing to share and that this worldview, right. you, we, we get caught in the practicals and not in the ends. Oh, look, they're living a good life. Absolutely. I know lots of noble pagans. Right, right, I know right. I know people who, man, they, are, they exercise, they take right. care of their kids, they love them, they're cared about, they care about their education and doing well and nurturing their relationships and having good, harmonious things in their life. Mm-hmm. They care about that, but, but, the, but their ends remain earthly. They may remain earthbound. Well, and it's hard for us then to be like, well, what's the goal? I mean, if I'm, if I'm listening to these self-help videos, they're going to tell me I can be a millionaire. I've got a very concrete goal right. so I can have a million dollars or whatever it is. If I'm evangelizing, sometimes it's harder to see what what's the concrete goal of this. And that's where we Why feel should f- I love my enemies? Yes. Why should I pray for those who are persecuting me? Because it feels like being thrown listen? away. Yes. Yeah, but it's it's how it's it's John sitting in prison. Like how much do you actually trust that God is aware of your comings and goings and the comings and goings and the sitting and standing of that person who you consider an enemy? Right. Are you willing to evangelize them because you trust that there is such concreteness in the goal because God has promised what he would do and that he would be faithful that you're willing to actually sacrifice, repent, to turn around to actually do that. Yeah, but we we abstractize it, right? Right. Evangelization is this abstraction. Like, oh, it's just kind of generically good news-ish <laughs> stuff, right? Yeah. We don't have the the prize in mind. Right. Which is the soul of that person for whom God died. 
That's why I evangelize, because God died because he loves that person so much. So what can I do? What can I turn from to actually share my life with them and share the life that God has given me with them? Hmm. But we make it too abstract. But he's had this in mind since we were in the womb. Since they were in the womb. Since That's that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. I was just adding. I'm icing on the cake. Hey, you're icing on the cake. Thanks, man. Speaking of wombs. We go to Luke. (laughs) We do. So when the time, so we, we, uh. It's funny, we begin the Gospel of Luke with the Annunciation to Zechariah, right? That he's So we don't begin the Gospel of Luke with Jesus' Annunciation. We begin it with the announcement of John the Baptist to Zechariah. So Luke always does this thing where he gives this, the, the less important announcement first because he likes reversing things. That's the whole Magnificat, right? Right. Reverse, it's not quite what you expect. It's the opposite, which um, is, yeah. is so much how I preach too. It's, it is kind of true. I like, to, I like to say funny things Surprise. so that people are like, where is this dude going with this? It's always fun to see how you begin homilies. I like it. And when I'm when I'm on when I'm doing my best, I just like oh, that's the way I do it. Oh, it's the best. So Zachariah is given this announcement, but then we're silent for a while, and then we hear the story of Jesus's annunciation, the angel Gabriel, and all these different things. And then here at the end of chapter one of Luke, we go back, and he's like, okay, back to Luke or back to uh, to to Elizabeth and, and family and Zechariah. So the time finally came for Elizabeth to have her child. She gave birth to the son. All the neighbors and relatives, they heard, they came, and the Lord had shown great mercy toward her. And they rejoiced because there's a son, and Elizabeth and Zechariah were older, right? And they didn't think they could have children. And finally, they have the son, and it's wonderful. And everybody comes together on this big party to circumcise the child, which is it's the equivalent of having a big baptism party, right? The right. family and friends, they all come out Just for a little circumcision. bit more earthy. <laughs> That's a nice way to say it. And they were all going to call him Zechariah because that's his father's name and that's kind of what you do, right? You often name kids after the father and Zechariah had nothing to say because he's, he's mute, right? Because the dude is struck dumb, He's man. struck dumb. And then Elizabeth, and again, we can't forget the cultural norms that are being broken here, but Elizabeth is like, no, 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 we're not calling him Zechariah. We're calling him John. And I wonder if there's some people there who are like, you're just taking advantage of your husband not being able to speak. And you're like, I'm going to name him whatever I want to name him. Like, I'm not going to call him Zechariah. And then what are you going to say about it? Because you're, you're mute. And they were like, get, and he's like, get me a tablet. He signaled for something. Well, and but they were they were like this, that doesn't make any sense. There's no you don't have any relatives named that. Like that's not a family name because there's something deeply familial about names because they reveal something about you. This is an offspring of this family. This is where I come from. It's, it, it, a name in the ancient world is almost a little microcosm of your salvation history, mm. where you come from, who you are, and I love. You know, I love telling people the stories of the names of my kids because all of my kids and we always we always try to they're a little tricky. Right. But my names, my kids are all named after saints. But Lily is named after uh, St. Kateri Tekawitha, uh, who is called the Lily of the Mohawks. Right. And and Evelyn, her middle name is Luke after Blessed Chiara Luce Badano, which was a nickname. So it's you know, it's kind of these funds, but they all are embedded in this family history, the story. And Samuel Isaac is a little more explicit, but. But they're all embedded in the family story because the name is supposed to reveal something about a person. At least that was the understanding. Right. And she's like, John. And they're like, that doesn't, where that come from? And do you remember what John na- means, by the way? Um, John means um, the bathroom? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I gotta That's go to the John. From the Germanic root. <laughs> I don't know what John it means. It means Yahweh has shown favor. Which is ironic Yahweh because there's a shown favor. God okay. has shown favor. So literally what Elizabeth is saying, they're like, well, what are you going to name him, Zechariah? And she answers, God has shown favor. That's what we'll call him. That's because his identity is wrapped up in his vocation. 
His name reveals who he is. Right. God has shown favor, both to us because we thought we were barren, ironically to Zechariah who struck mute, which doesn't seem like God's favor, but it is because God's active in his life. But he's also going to embody that for all of Israel. God mm. will show favor to Israel through this guy. Yes. And they're like, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, you know, it's all embedded. And so, yeah, like you said, he asks for his iPad and he writes his name is John. <laughs> Everybody's amazed. They're like, oh my goodness, it's crazy. And then... It's it's amazing. He writes the words. Uh, wait, what does it mean again? Um, Yahweh has shown favor. John uh, Zechariah writes down the words. God has shown favor, and as he writes those words, as he articulates that God has shown favor, he can speak again. He expresses something true, mm. and with his expression of truth, which is the opposite of what he did back in the temple when he expressed doubt, and he's like, I don't know if God can do that. I'm not sure he's going to show me his favor. Yeah, Gabriel, you're saying he's going to show me favor in this way? Mm. I don't know if I buy it. And then on the flip side, he says, God has shown favor, mm. and the curse is lifted, so to speak, and he can speak all of a sudden. Right. And everybody's like, this is amazing. And they all spoke well of him and his name was spread. And everyone's like, man, this kid is going to do something. Yeah. They're like, this is a pretty wild start all. This is a pretty wild start. And they say, they recognize this is the beauty. And it, it's so subtle, but some of the heroes of this week's series of readings are those friends and family. Who are like, that's not a name. Like, what do, what do you mean you're going to name him John? That doesn't make any sense. But they, they have the eyes of faith to see what's happening. Mm. Zechariah has the courage to express the gospel message, which is God has shown favor. He evangelizes through writing on that pad. Elizabeth evangelizes by saying, we will be faithful. And as a result, the people around who are skeptical, they receive the word of God. And they say, oh, yeah. We see it. God is active in your life. We see your faithfulness, and we're inspired to do something about it. It's a little microcosm of how evangelization actually is supposed to work. Well, now, I even want to go back one section, though. Dude, okay, everybody's trying to make—okay, think about this for a second. Zechariah had the most amazing opportunity that would be sometimes only once in a lifetime. Yeah, to offer the incense in the temple, yeah. Right, and then to proclaim the name yeah, of God. Yeah, you can only do it once in your life if you were a Levitical priest. Right, and so he has a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and he blows it. And blows it. <laughs> now, at the end of this <coughs> child moment, uh, I, I, like so nine months later, everybody's still talking about how he, he shanked it at the temple. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, like, Do you think so? Absolutely. Well, Come on. That's the biggest, that's the biggest thing happening. Do you think they know? 100%, dude. Why? How? Dude, okay. He can't speak. He, he can't, can't tell anybody what happened in there. Everybody else can say, no, no. They know that he couldn't pronounce the name of God over the Ooh, people. Yeah, that's true. And that's uh, a I super see, public act. Yeah, so so to put a fine point on what you're saying, after the offering incense, he was supposed to come out and proclaim God's blessing on all the people, which if he struck mute, he can't actually do. So he couldn't finish the job, And so, yes, is what you're saying. And yeah. so everybody was super excited. They got the big mm. band out, and they're like, And he doesn't do it. So now, if you guys have ever had anything funny happen in your family where somebody's really messed something up, what does everybody want to do? They want to normalize. They want uh, everything to just kind of be okay, uh, to have it normal. Uh, so the so the bris that they're going to, this big party for for his circumcision, they're like, this is all right. Hey, everybody, you know, everybody's like, they got the balloons, they're doing it. It's like just it's like the family's normal. Everybody's yeah, everything's right. okay. Yeah. 
and then Elizabeth does this, and everybody's like, "This hold on, this isn't normal. This anymore. isn't normal. This is this is getting weird." And they're like, "Oh my gosh, this is." But then all of a sudden, all of that abnormality and that weird forsakenness and how everything's botched becomes this kind of new extraordinary expression. And this is what we're afraid of. I mean, this is the content of every Disney movie that you've ever seen. Einstein? No, is that is that something weird? The come on, they dude, die me... in every movie. I hate Disney. <laughs> movies because all the parents always die okay oh my gosh anyway that's a different soapbox that's a different podcast <laughs> no the, the, well, something something abnormally difficult happens like the parents, parents dying die. um and and out of this profound difficulty comes a new expression of glory and grace usually a princess <laughs> usually a princess some sort of royalty some sort of <laughs> yes. you know it, it, but that that's actually what this becomes is that this is this abnormal abnormal mm-hmm. difficult reality that becomes a new exultant thing yes and that john the baptist we do, i mean all of a sudden what is this kid going to be and we realize he's the voice isaiah pointed towards him he is a fulfillment of hope ironically that he's the voice right because what are the circumstances he's oh, born into? Voicelessness. Voicelessness. Because Zechariah is embodying Israel, who up to that point has been voiceless. Because it's been not waiting speaking and to the nations. Yes. And he's the one who's willing to go out, literally outside of the boundaries of Israel to invite them in. To the He's inviting the nations. Oh, my gosh. See, here's the thing, though. Oh, yeah. No, never mind. Nothing. I, I, I'm wrong about what I was about to say. I'm just, I, I'm yeah, laid yeah. out. So, so like, the, so the nativity, so this is like, man, this is a sweet birthday for somebody who is going to be. Which means, so, you know, Zechariah, you can make the argument, didn't finish the job. He does here because he says the name of his son, which is God's name. But in a certain sense, what Which is a bestowal of mission. Which is a bestowal of mission. So what really happens? Well, it's John who will essentially fulfill what his father couldn't do. He's the one who says, behold the lamb. I mean, Zechariah is supposed to be the one to bestow the blessing on the people, but it's actually his son who will fulfill the role that his father could never ultimately fulfill. Mm. And the father is, in a very real sense, passing on that authority to his son. Mm. His name is John. His name has the name of the Lord, of Yahweh himself. And then he will go in the wilderness, he will become manifest, and he will say, like John says, there is the lamb. Who will bless you? So you get all of salvation history in the transition of old covenant to new covenant really embodied in John. John is the bridge that holds everything together. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he's the forebearer of the new covenant, of the one who is the new covenant. Mm. He must decrease, which means the old covenant, the old priesthood, the old ritualist ceremonies must decrease so that Jesus may increase with the new priesthood and a new covenant and a new means of sacrifice. He bridges all of it. He connects the dots. Yes. Which is really cool. His name is John, and he probably killed at soccer. <laughs> as, you, as you say. Well, you guys, this is uh, inspired by the World Cup going right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. May uh, may the United States win. That shows my ignorance. We're not actually in. Okay, that's non-ignorance then. Yeah, I, I don't mean, even know. Just, Whatever. I okay. was like, are we in it? Yo, go, yay soccer! <laughs> football. <laughs> football. Football. All right. We will see you next week, I think. Um, If we see you next week, it will be awesome. Um, amazing. Awesome. The- Beautiful. We'll leave it at that. Okay. (laughs) Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. 
You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash A-I-C-T. You can send us an email, lankyguys at thomascenter.org. And we love you guys. Keep us in your prayers.